Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. It's uh, it's hot. Man, it is hot in Burbank. It is 90 degrees today in Burbank. Now, you have to understand, I know I've complained before when it's hot, but that was like in September or October. This is November, and it's 90 degrees. And now, me and Joanne are flying back east in two weeks for a few days. And I hope it's a little chillier back there because... It just it doesn't feel like Thanksgiving. It feels like summer. You drive around in your car. We have the air on. You know, usually you have that time in your bills where, you know, you get walloped in uh, the summer on your air conditioning. And then usually, you know, let's say September, you know, October, November, even December, because we, we, we don't really use the heat much because it doesn't get cold out here. But man, we have the air on today and it's November. And that just sucks because how can I buy Christmas presents if I got to pay for air conditioning? I'm going to tell Joanne and go, a Merry Christmas here. Here's your Christmas present, air conditioning. Anyway, we have a, we have a great show. I, I contacted this gentleman a while ago, and uh, he was on a great show called The Bridge with uh, my friend Alejandro Patino, and he played a character with like the coolest last name ever, which was Cooper. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his music career, and he's been, he's been gigging since he was a kid. And my guest is Johnny Dowers. How you doing, Johnny? I am great, Steve. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Now, now, do you also live in Burbank? I do. I, I can't believe that we haven't run into each other at the $10 a month Burbank Athletic Center. Oh, oh uh, God. Do you go there? <laughs> I did I did briefly years ago. But, uh, yeah, no, I have kids in school there all over Burbank and between football and volleyball and uh, tap dancing, you know, for the man. I can't believe we haven't run into each other. So. Hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a man about, since Joanne moved out, I'm inside. I'm inside a lot. I used to be out and about all the time, but uh, she sort of domesticated me because, you know, I said, you know, she said, hey, I'm living out here. You can't be at the bar every night with your friends. And, and after a while, I figured out, you know what? She's right because it's a lot more fun yeah. hanging out with her watching TV than having drinks hearing the same old shit. So... Absolutely, and and, and spend, you know it's always ten dollar drink night in Burbank. Oh know? yeah, exactly. So that that too, it's so affordable. Now, now, now you you're working on you're working on a CD now, right? Uh, yeah. Well, we yeah, the band, the Sawdust Brothers, have one record that's been out for put it out. Um, it's all it's been out for ten months or so now, and then we're working on our second record right now. So yeah. Now, now, when, yeah. When did you start this whole entertainment career? You know, I go on the IMDb. It says you started as a young man on the gravel roads of the old Southern gospel circuit, which sounds like sounds like the opening of that movie. Remember that movie Crossroads with uh, Ralph Macchio? Yep. It sounds yep. like that. Like I can just see you. All I could picture I'm was the, a little, but just a little am, Johnny Dowers. I could picture a little Johnny yeah, Dowers. I'm the redneck Ralph Macchio. Yes. You, you found me out. <laughs> no, I also get pictures of like you being 10 years old with a mustache, walking with a guitar on gravel. Now, yep. now what and is a your... bag of crawfish. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what is your musical upbringing? How did this all happen? What got you into music? And then, I mean, mm-hmm. when did you start playing music and what got you interested? Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a lot of things. Uh, you know, partially growing up, down there uh was a great a great thing it's also uh so different than what my kids are growing up with but you know i i had to create imaginary friends just to have somebody to play with because our closest neighbors are so far away you know so but uh now i i from an early age just love to joke and tell stories and 
I had cousins, you know, I tell these stories and people think that you're making them up, you know, but um, a lot of my characters are, that I, when I get the joy to play a Southern character, because I don't always play Southern, uh, I love to bring things to it, because I had a cousin, you know, who played the banjo and had a boxer who would howl har in harmony with him on his porch at our family reunion, you know, so I had some great, eccentric, awesome people that I grew up around that loved music and I grew up in the church and you know I was always singing at the church and in quartets and was in a gospel quartet by the time I was in fifth grade you know and uh, just singing at church and uh, that was kind of my escape was music and you know making up melodies and things and so I didn't really start playing instruments until I was in college and toward the end of my college days to be honest um, and then didn't really get serious about instruments until I was in my, you know, later 20s in Nashville. Um, lived, I moved there right out of college and toured with a couple of gospel bands and was on the road singing uh, country and gospel sessions. And uh, so I really was started, mainly started playing guitar just to play songwriter nights because, you know, it was so hard to depend on, I always have to depend on an accompanist. I always have to depend on a piano player or a guitar player to play with you that just out of serious necessity, I finally said I should really learn how to play this better so that I don't have to, so I can do my own shows. Um, that's kind of how that started. And early on in my songwriting days, a very talented, great, great, one of my favorite singers named John Cowan. John was a member of the Newgrass Revival with Bella Fleck and those guys, and John was a writing partner of mine. And John said to me, I had a self-taught kind of, finger picking style on the guitar and he said one day you're going to pick up the banjo and you're not going to put it down and I said you're crazy as an outhouse rat but he was right um I fell in love with the banjo about 10 years ago um eight to ten years ago I've uh, been playing mandolin for about that long and so yeah a little bit of, a little bit of everything so now now you grew up in a town you grew up in a town in Louisiana Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. now, what is it like for uh, like you know you said that you're singing gospel? I mean, for what is it like as a, as a kid or as a teen singing gospel? Because so many of us, you know, as kids and teens, have such influences. You know, like for me, growing up in New Jersey, it was Springsteen, or you know, listening to sure. Zeppelin, yeah. or the Police, or Joe Jackson. Sure. But what's yeah. it like? You yeah. know, was that was that your influence? Is that what you listened to around the house, <laughs> or did you really get into country? Or what kind of music were you listening to as a kid? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, I had a really interesting, uh, had an interesting group of people. Uh, number one, my mom was the youngest of like 12 kids, you know, 13 oh, wow. kids. So a huge family, huge family. So, and I was one of the younger kids. So I had all these influences around me. My older brother was 11 years older than me, almost 12 years older than me. And, you know, so when I was really in my formative years, you know, I was listening to, you know, everything from Boston and Kansas to Judas Priest to, to, to you know, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and at the same time, Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson, and a lot of country, obviously, you know, from, from more popular country to old school, you know, Western country and honk-tonk country, and a lot of blues and a lot of rock, Bad Company, you name it, as it moved on into the 80s. But I had a ton of influences. and But most of my stuff was either the rebellious kind of rock or influences or it was church. It was, Chris, it was church, you know, because a lot of people burned their records in the backyard. And I'm not making fun of that, but, you know, there's a lot of really conservative folks I grew up around who 
didn't want you to listen to that kind of music. So you were kind of really a rebel, you know, if you went and listened to Dr. Love in the Ford F-150 in the backyard, you know. Um, so for me, yeah, I came to a lot of things like the Beatles, Springsteen. I knew some of Springsteen, but I didn't really become a huge Springsteen fan until I was in my late 30s. Um, you know, I didn't really become a big Beatles fan until I was in my 30s. Uh, so I came to a lot of things that a lot of people were blessed to get, you know, around at a young age, uh, college and later, you know. So it, it really kind of tra- informed and changed a lot of my style, even, and my taste as I, you know, got the access or got around things that I didn't have when I was younger. Most of my stuff was very blues and country and bluegrass and um, and rock-oriented. Now, now, how did gospel uh, influence your actual singing style when you were younger and developing? Was it something that, you know, I mean, because I'm trying, you know, all I can think of when I think of gospel is, you know, the movies and stuff like that. And I mean, how did that influence your singing? Could you really develop your own voice, or was it always like all in harmonious and in a big group? Yeah, it, it was a lot of my um, my style and the, and the music that I love and the, the voices that I love tend to be. It's interesting. I have a lot of different styles I enjoy, but as far as my own style, I guess the gospel influence is mostly harmonies, mostly uh, old you know, hymn and bluegrass type harmonies and, and the old Baptist churches. I say the old Baptist churches are still, they're still there when you go down there, but the cha- you know, the music has changed a lot. But just, I grew up around some rich, amazing musicians in the little town I was in. You wouldn't believe how many great singers and musicians that we had at the Quincy, Louisiana. And just church was the place that you could go and, and get around those great singers. And I was the only Baptist that the Pentecostal church would let come in there, you know, uh, that it not, uh, they, they would sneak me in the back door because they were still going for a couple of hours after the Baptists had let out because if we didn't beat the Methodists to Tostos fried chicken, there would be a, a battle royale. So, you know, when our church was done, the Pentecostals were still going. So a charismatic church. So I would go sing over there and they were, they had all the instruments where some of our churches didn't want you to play certain instruments. They had electric and bass and, so, I mean, for me, when I say gospel, it's more of, um, you know, it's it's uh, not necessarily urban gospel, but kind of almost in a way kind of uh, from the straightforward hymns, you know, of, of old school country and bluegrass gospel, kind of even where the where Elvis's roots were and where the, the Blackwood Brothers and the Oak Ridge Boys and all those kind of folks got their influences, but all the way into more of kind of urban gospel, um, you know, uh, really uh, rootsy kind of styles with harmonies, you know, that kind of transitioned into blues, you know, in a way. So that's, it influenced me. I like really clear voices. Um, if you want to get a more modern kind of comparison, uh, I should say modern. It's going to sound like I'm really old, but J.D. Souther and, and, you know, Glenn Fry was a big influence and of the more modern, you know, Eagles kind of those kind of things, and Vince Gill, and Pure Prairie League, and, you know, I'm a big fan of those clear voices and high harmonies, and a lot of the old gospel bands, Gold City Quartet, and, um, you know, the Oak Ridge Boys, and Statler Brothers, those are big influences on me growing up. Now, 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 where did you go to college, and what what was your major? (laughs) I went to... I think I'm one of the only people to graduated four years from, from three schools, almost four. 
Um, I started at Northwestern State because I was trying to play baseball and uh, and had an opportunity to maybe play football uh, at, at somewhere. And I was try- I was in sports. I was always an athlete, and so I was mainly there trying to play baseball and didn't make the team. Walked on the golf team, and I played loved golf and did that for a semester. And then an opportunity opened up at a junior college in Mississippi to go play baseball, and I went there for two for two a year and a half. Uh, to a great little small Baptist junior college in Clark, Mississippi, that it's the first time they'd ever had a baseball team, and a great group of young men, and played ball down there, and went traveled around singing at churches on the weekends when I wasn't playing baseball, and uh, then that transition from there, I went to Louisiana College, uh, where I played baseball and where I sang, and so I, I tell my kids who are growing up in Burbank, and my son, you know, is in show choir and he's in football, and he's—it's a different deal trying to do both nowadays. But uh, I always tell him you can do it because I used to sing the national anthem and then run down to start at second base. So right. uh, <laughs> that's kind of—I of, was—I was a leadoff hitter, so sometimes I'd finish the last note of the anthem and I'd run down and somebody just hand me a bat and helmet in the bat, you know. So, so, um, so, so you graduate college and then now, I mean, why? What made you decide to move to Nashville right out of college? Well. When you're, when you know that you're, when you know that you're going to be creative and that you're, you know, uh, you want to be in entertainment, you kind of have a couple choices, you know. And, uh, and and as a country boy, it's either Nashville or it's L.A. You know, you're too afraid to move to New York. That's crazy talk, you know. When you grow up where I did. So at that time, I was petrified of New York. At that time, for me, theater in New York was scary, and it wasn't something that it was more like, well, I'm either going to move out to L.A. and try to get on TV to stand up, or I'm going to move to Nashville. And at that time, music was really the thing that I had done the most of and was, at that time, probably didn't even know. I'd done some local commercials and local theater, but I really didn't see myself as, that I had the, even the ability to act and to get on uh, production. So I went to Nashville to get on the road and, and, uh, and to tour and, and to sing and thought I would be traveling, singing, whether it was churches or county fairs, whatever. I'd be touring Thursday through Sunday and then uh, writing songs during the week. And that's kind of what I did for a while as well as work other jobs. But, yeah, I basically, I sang, I, my college had a couple bands come through, gospel bands come through that I opened for just because I played around the town where my college was in Alexandria, Louisiana, and sang at churches and the student union and the Baptist student union guys who knew me would ask me to, open and I get opportunities to sing with people and I open for you know several people that uh when I, that came contacts of mine uh in the gospel world and some of the country world and that kind of transitioned into me having an opportunity through a group called Truth which was a big gospel praise group uh I got an opportunity for a group called the Living Word Singers which was Dick and Mel Tunney which was out of Nashville but they were also out of New Jersey so interestingly enough, I went to Nashville, got in this group, and wound up going to a rehearsal camp at Toms River, New Jersey, for months. And then so, uh, out of there, but that brought me into Nashville. So yeah, I was there uh, from that from 1993 until 2001. We played uh, we played Toms River in football in high school because I'm from New Jersey. Nice, yeah. So that's, I know I, I knew you're from New Jersey. I, that's my my only experience with New Jersey. Well, it is Tom's River one summer and traffic circles. Yeah, traffic circles. Well, they, the funny thing is they got rid of they got rid of all the traffic circles. 
I went back and I'm like, what the, I'm like, I went back a few years ago before, when I was visiting Joanne before she moved out here. And I was like, what the hell happened to the traffic circles? It's like when that was a thing when you were a yes. kid, your parents knew you were okay to drive when they let you drive the traffic circle. That was like the thing that yeah. you were allowed to take their car out on a date if you could commandeer a traffic can, circle. Yeah, I can imagine because I was driving a van. You know, we, we went, took our own gear. You know, we went and stayed in, in the homes of churches or small hotels and loaded out our own gear. And I would, and I would you know, be the front man for this uh, praise group, this gospel group. But we traveled all over the country in Canada for two years. And, and New Jersey, one of the most stressful times of my entire stint at the wheel of that van was traffic circles in New Jersey. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so so you, you were in Nashville for eight years? Yeah, almost nine, yeah, yeah. And were, yeah. You, were, you, were you feel like, did you feel like you were growing as an artist? Did you feel like you were attaining what you wanted to do? Because it seems like it wasn't about big success. It seems it was about you. It was just playing the music and singing. Did you feel you were getting that in Nashville? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting now at the age I am now with kids, you know, to look back because my first daughter was born in Nashville before, uh, before we left Nashville. But yeah, you know, it's interesting at the time I just thought, well, I'm just, you know, I was singing at the Opryland was still open. The theme park was still open back then. I was singing the Opryland theme park and I get to sing back up on some matinees of the Opry here and there. And, you know, I was just singing and kind of doing my thing and working some side jobs and had some songs on hold for some big artists, you know, but never got a cut. But, had you know a song on hold for Alan Jackson, a song on hold for like you know some 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 action as a writer for publishing companies, but mainly just would write and not have much success, and you know just trying to to pay dues there. And it's interesting. Um, I did see enough success to know that I'm supposed to entertain. You know, to know that I know I can sing and I know people enjoy my voice. And but mainly for me, that was learning learning my voice learning to play instruments and learning the value of instruments and learning to not just write songs I could sing well on, but to actually start writing from the standpoint of a character, like you would write a script. And during those, speaking of Springsteen, during those days, got into some of his music and more singer-songwriter stuff and began to understand that every song that I wrote didn't need to be something from personal experience, that... I could sing because it was my testimony, you know, in church or because it was, I began to create characters and that kind of straight handed led me into acting. You know, I had done some acting and I had been around it, but I had not created, it led me, led me to write my first screenplay, I should say, you know, because I started just adventuring into every way of writing characters and creating characters. Now, when was your first break in acting was I, I read you were playing guitar on the set or something or <laughs> um my first real break to me there are several things in my life where i was like oh this is you know obviously if i get the opportunity to do this i want to do more of this you know and i gone to a few one-off classes you know in nashville i done some stand-up in college and you know i was always around it i've done some local commercials and in louisiana as a kid and in nashville and had always kind of been around it, but nothing, nothing substantial. And then I, um, the first thing that happened was I was living in Nashville and they, you know, went across the wire. Hey, there's, um, 
tryouts at the mall for the Travel Channel to be the, a host on the Travel Channel or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And uh, friends and family at the time, I'm like, you got to go, you got to go. And, you know, I went down and stood in some whole long line and got up and you had to create a 30-second spot. The, the thing was, okay, you just got your own show. You know, it's called, uh, what's it called, who are you? And I improv this whole thing about the Great American Road Trip with Johnny Dowers. And I wound up winning this thing where the Travel Channel came to Nashville and shot a commercial and I was the star of it. And the uh, new local news covered it and I got to get up to the stage at the Ryman and play and sing a little bit and talk about my music and just do a whole thing about the tourist, you know, uh, situation in Nashville. And, you know, we just had the Titans come there and all that kind of stuff. And, so that was kind of a big, uh, a big thing for me to finally say, oh, well, out of all these people, you know, that I got chosen to do this and chosen to do this. And then we had the Green Mile come through Nashville, uh, or maybe that happened before, I can't remember. And I was writing at the time for Barbara Orbison uh, for Still Working Music, which was Roy Orbison's widow and, and manager, and Barbara's passed since then. Uh, and, uh, but I was writing for them, and I was also an extra on the Green Mile, and uh, Barbara came to set. I didn't know she'd come to set because she knew the producer, David Valdez, and, and uh, Frank Darabont. And I wound up as an extra in the scene that day with Michael Clark Duncan going to dinner that night with David Valdez and Frank Darabont, which is incredibly crazy, and Barbara Orbison, and kind of getting to hear them and talk to them, and that really lit a fire. And then uh, a movie called The Last Castle came through Nashville. And I was at first stood in a mile-long line to be an extra, and then was bumped up to being a stand-in uh, and worked as a stand-in for many of the actors, Mark Ruffalo, and even stood in some for Redford. He had his own guy, but I worked some with him, stood for Robert Wright Penn, and uh, a lot of Frank military, a lot of different people, as you know, in the industry now. And, and got to know Clifton Collins Jr. a little bit, several great actors watching him and Mark Ruffalo work. And then my band played at lunch. I was a PA. Finally, the director, Rob Lurie, came to me and said, is there any job on this movie that you haven't had? And I said, if there is, get it to me. Because um, he liked our band at lunch. And so he, I walked out after lunch and met the Sergeant Major, who was a uh, advisor on the movie. It's a military movie. And um, wound up auditioning to be a drill sergeant running PT with all these inmates. Auditioned in front of Redford and Gambolfini and 300 extras to get my first principal role in the movie. So <laughs> that was it. So you got that. So now, now, mm -hmm. where do you decide to do after that? I mean, how do you gravitate to L.A.? When do you decide to move to L.A.? <laughs> and how does it all happen? I had, yeah, I had for a few years in Nashville during that time started to, like I said, gone to classes and had done some stand-up. And I started to really think, gosh, since I, was, since I can remember, I wanted to act. Since I was a kid, I could create characters, you know, and, and watch TV and I wanted to act and never really had. Did did little theater in Lake Charles, Louisiana with, with some great productions, did some musicals as a kid. And, you know, I knew I wanted to act, but um, never had the real opportunity. And then when that presented itself and that movie, you know, at the time, truthfully, I just didn't know anybody. At the time, I didn't know that movies didn't come to a location like that and people didn't get bumped all the time to be principals, you know. I just didn't know anybody. I didn't know that what had happened to me was so unusual. You know, and I just thought, well, the natural next step is uproot my entire family and, you know, and go to L.A. to the premiere. You know, I knew better than the move yet, but I, I did come out for the premiere just to see I was cut out of the movie and not even in the credits. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, typical, you know, but it brought me here and it brought me here to, and oddly I wound up in Burbank. 
just rented a car and drove around and just kind of, how do I feel? And is this the next step? And wound up in Burbank and just felt like that was the place, you know, and really liked it. And I thought, well, I didn't think there'd be anywhere out here I could live, but Burbank seems like a small town, you know. It does. It's And I could transition. And so, yeah, man, I actually, at the time, my wife at the time, the kids stayed in Nashville, and I came out here with a buddy and got a place and was going back and forth very hard. I had a young daughter at the time, and, um, you know, it was really difficult, but I just knew that was what I was, you know, that was the opportunity I'd been waiting for through my life, you know, to, to do it, and uh, that was what brought me out here. What, uh, where was, when you first moved here, what area of Burbank did you live in? I was up in the Verdugo Hills, man. Um, I, I'm a golfer, you know, and, and I love golf, and I had a great public course up there at the Bell, um, you know, golf course, and I wanted to live close to the golf course, and, uh, you know, really liked So I lived up on uh, Verdugo, just north of Glen Oaks. That's right. So I, 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 live, I, live, I, live, I live a block from there. I live, I live on 5th and Tonga. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I love that area. That was my first area, man. That was my jam. I'd run up to Sunset Lane, you know, up by the golf course. I'd jog up there and run down. and That that was my area, yeah. And, um, yeah, man, I started, I, I got a really fortunate, you know, I'd done some stand-up, and I met a guy in an acting class there in Burbank who uh, played a little guitar and loved comedy and was a good comedy writer, good for some stand-ups in town, and, we started just putting together some comedy and going to workshops and whatnot and working. We worked the same night gig together at a, at a, at a DVD QC place in Burbank and I, that I actually still do some work at in time to time. And, but, uh, we started creating comedy and, and we're just crazy enough for nobody to tell us we couldn't do it. And we started doing stand up shows under at the time called the Ham and Eggers. And then we eventually started calling ourselves the Johnsons and, uh, and started doing, you know, kind of a Smothers Brothers, I don't know, meets Cheech and Chong kind of comedy show where original music and stand-up. And during that time, I was really blessed to come in contact with some people. Billy Connolly became a, good, a friend of mine and started kind of mentoring and helping us with, gave us material and just was such a dear, bought me a ukulele one Christmas and encouraged me to play it. And we just got a lot of great um, people who kind of, took us under their wing and helped us out and we started doing stand-up around town and we wrote a feature called Picking and Grinning that was based on that comedy and uh, we were just crazy enough to think that we could make it. It was going to be a TV show, pitch, a TV series and then we realized at that time it was so hard to do your own pilot and try to get it going that we just had some friends that were in the business enough had connections to money like, hey, if you guys want to do a feature, we can make it for 60 grand or whatever it was and so we just started writing and it's a long, long, as you can imagine, story, but different people we had met and wound up, John Grise was, was a guy I really loved as an actor and, 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 and met him at a music store one day and loved the movie he had done called Jackpot with the Polish Brothers and Garrett Morris, and we just fawned over him, hey, man, love Jackpot, and he's like, I think you and my, you know, my mom and the people who saw that movie, you know, and uh, we we're like, no, we love it, and we were, we're kind of making a comedy, and we were just, you know, brave enough to go ask people, you know, I ran into W.L. Brown at a, at a coffee shop in, in Burbank, and I uh, loved his work, and, you know, I was just so green to L.A., I was like, hey, I got a script, right. <laughs> and he was like, you know what, you're from the South, I'll read it, <laughs> and we just got really fortunate, and we did this little indie movie with Billy Gibbons and Kenny, Kenny Loggins, and 
you know, we had all these, and Garrett Morris played our manager, and he's on Two Broke Girls now, you know, Garrett Morris was saying that live, and just, we're really fortunate that people enjoyed our comedy, but in that movie, uh, up to that movie, won some festivals and got a small release, and John Grise invited Elwood Reed, who created and put together the bridge to um, a tiny little Arclight theater in North Hollywood to come see the movie, and uh, or not Arclight, um, Lemley theater to come see our little release and um that's that was the beginning of me getting on the bridge so it's so funny you know just i always say small world like you mentioned w rollo brown he's been on the show yeah mark polish has been on the show um yeah john grys me and him have gone back and forth me and him have had had phone conversations and it's always hard to i haven't been able to lock him down and because i don't think he, he doesn't do it on skype but he says we gotta do this and I said, I'll do the phone. But it's just funny how like everyone, like, there's so many people in this town that know each other. And, and, and I tell yeah. people this all the time, that people are always willing to help, too. And that's a lot of people yeah. don't think. People think, oh, oh, they're, they're actors. They're, they have a, a somewhat of a celebrity or they've been in TV. They're, 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 not, yeah. you know, they're, they're not approachable. And that's really, I've learned, especially from doing the show, very different. Because most of the people I talk to and meet, are just down to earth people who are just feeling blessed that they get to do their craft and, and make a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, you're right. And when we did festivals, people would say, "How did you get these people in your movie?" And you know, number one, we're also blessed with a cat, great casting director, Fair West, who we met through other jobs and stuff, who wound up working with April Western, other good people, and. Veronica Collins Rooney, but anyway, fair. But but also, we would just tell them, well, my mom always told me, you have not because you asked not. Right. You know, we asked. How did we get them? We asked. You know, we were, we believed in our script. And so I agree with what you're saying. And, and but what I'd say is, if you know that you have good material and you believe in, in what you're gifted or called to do or how do you see it in this world, what you're meant to do, and you work at it hard and you know that you're capable, then yes, I mean, you, you know, you just have to ask, you know, you, what do you, what does no hurt you? You know, you're going to hear no a lot in your life. So what does it really do to you? You know, um, so you ask and, you know, Mark Post was one of the first people and Michael Post told us, just film it. You know, they have a great book, The Declaration of Independent Filmmaking. And they would tell us, just film it, just get started. Just get started. You know, because, and in that everything with life, Steve, you know, just get started. You know, how many people talk about it? But they don't get started, you know. Um, you know, we're dealing with an election right now. I don't want to get all into that, but a lot of people talk about stuff, but they don't get involved. You know? Oh, you know, I, I just talk about things. So, you know, it's you, you deal with that if you don't get proactive with your life. And for me, I knew that I was going to be entertaining, and I knew I'd be telling jokes, and I knew that I'd also do drama. I love drama. And the fact that my first show to really get me out there was a drama was a huge blessing to me because... I really was only working in comedy and trying to do comedy, and the fact that someone like Elwood Reed saw picking and grinning and was like, "This guy could do this kind of kooky but yet serious character," you know, uh, was really a blessing for me. But yeah, I think people are out there. You know, Eric Lang's become a good buddy. He's been on your show, yeah. and Eric's supportive and a great guy. And you know, like just to be able to, you know, you're right. I know it's a big industry, but Nashville was kind of a small, a minor league version of this. It's, all the decisions are made by a handful of people, and you get to know people. And I've been blessed in my it's my fifth, it's my sixteenth year in LA. It's crazy, um, and 
I'm always shocked and blessed and honored how many people I've met and know. And when I work on something, to be like, oh, I know those people. Like, you know, if you work long enough and hard enough and you just don't quit, that's kind of what I tell people. (laughs) You know, if you really know that you're meant to do it and you believe in yourself, then, you know, Talent and hard work pays off, and as James Taylor used to say, "Good songs find a place." Exactly. Now, 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 with the bridge, which is funny because uh, me and Joanne watched the bridge religiously, and uh, we loved the show. And uh, yeah. and when that when okay, so so you're sitting there, and you know, you know, you have you personally know you have the ability to do mm. drama, and now you have yeah. someone who is sitting there who knows you have it, and if you look at your IMD before that. There's not a, there was there wasn't a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, you were a street yeah. performer on charm, charm, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot now. I mean, so <laughs> yeah. so so when he tells you that, what is your meeting like? Does he does he come and tell you the the premise of the show? Because you know the premise of the show, as I'm someone who lo- likes dark stuff, but as sure. a viewer, there's a lot of people when you see the opening scene with two bodies, you know. Right. And have, it's something that most, it's going to lose some people. But, but so how does he approach sure. you when he tries to, he says to you, okay, I may have a role for you. How does he approach you? And then does he tell you what the show's about? And do you go through a long audition process or did you pretty much have the part because he saw your work and he met you and you guys hit it off? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great story, especially for working actors out there. If people want to be working actor because of obviously what we go through to try to just be honored and blessed to have a gig, you know? Um, so I was in Nashville at the premiere of Picking and Grinning at a, at the movie theater that I used to take my, my, my first wife, used to take my wife to dates there when we were dating and see people like Will Ferrell and be like, oh, I want to be in the movie one day. So Picking and Grinning was premiering there against the campaign. <laughs> you know, interestingly, like big movie, you know, we had this tiny little movie with no budget, but it was premiering there and I was down there for it because I went and did, uh, um, WSM, you know, Grand Ole Opry Radio. I was fortunate with Connections in Nashville to go promote the film a little bit and talk about it. And the film's about these guys in Winnebago that travel to Nashville because they think they're going to be country stars. So anyway, I'm down in Nashville promoting it. I get a call from our director, my good buddy John Grise. He calls me and says, hey, man, uh, you know, a buddy of mine is putting this show together for FX. He just came to, uh, I don't know, I told this full story, Steve. It's funny because when I was on the show, I didn't want to, you know, you don't want to offend casting because even though I did go into casting, I didn't start with them. You know, you, you just you aren't able to really tell the whole story sometimes. So anyway, he called, John called me. It's like I invited my buddy, and he did not not only come to the movie, but he brought his whole family. And they loved it, and he's putting the show together for FX, and uh, I, he might call you. And he said, he called me and said, I've got this role that I've been having trouble casting, and I think Johnny's perfect for it, but it's a big role. You know, what What do you, do you think Johnny can handle it? And uh, Grise just said something, one of the best things anybody's ever said. He said, what kind of actor is he? And, and uh, Johnny Grise said he's the type of actor that brings uh, flowers where there are weeds. It chokes me up to here now. You know, it's a really, really awesome thing to say about someone. And, uh, yeah, and, and Elwood said, uh, called me and said, hey, you know, I sent you stuff to Cat. Well, kind of, I think Facebook messaging. I can't remember if it's email or Facebook. And Elwood, you know, Facebook that much. It's kind of funny to say that now. But he reached out. We talked and said, send your stuff to casting. And I want to bring you in for this uh, when you get back. And uh, I want you to meet my producing partner, Meredith Stein, and the director of our, of our pilot, Gerardo and Ronjo. 
I was like, absolutely, I would love to. I'm honored, you know. And it was Wendy Wyman and Rebecca Montier casting it at the time in the first season. And so I went in for an initial, just kind of, I think I was supposed to read one of the scenes. I had two of them prepped. But I went in and just met um, with, 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 with Meredith Stein and the Bellwood and with um, and Catherine. I think that first meeting was just that, with Rebecca and, and Wendy. And we just talked, and they talked to me, and I think we may have read one scene. And then uh, I had the rare opportunity, you know, the elder reached out and was like, hey, you know, you did great, don't worry, you know, we're going to, you know, it's going to, you know, it's a network show, so it's a lot of things, a lot of hoops to jump through, you know, it's very supportive. Uh, we'll, we'll have you again, in again soon, hopefully. So, because they were still casting the leads at the time, you know, I don't even know that they had, I think they had Diane at the time, but I don't think they had had all the deals done for the leads. But anyway, so a couple of weeks go by, and I get a, uh, you know, message uh, from uh, uh, my, uh, I can't even remember who reached out to me first, but uh, at the time, because I didn't know that agent at the time, I think I, I, I you know what, I had managers who dropped me, <laughs> and I kind of went back to them, and was like, hey, I might have something going on here. <laughs> <laughs> you might you might want to help me with this, you know. They that they'd gotten my only my only quote, you know, that I'd had, and so I think they got involved. And I think casting reached out to them and said, "We do want to see Johnny again to meet the director of the pilot, and to, and Meredith will be there again, and Elwood." And I went in and basically did um, two of the scenes and just talked to them a great deal, and that was really that was really it, you know. And then. Uh, I didn't, uh, Elwood was very sweet that day, which is rare again to reach out and say, Hey, you really killed it. Love you for this character. You know, uh, thanks for, you know, living up to what people said and hope to get to work together. A couple weeks went by and managers call, or a week went by and managers called me and said, You're going to do this. And the pilot is just like, you know, one scene or two scenes. And, but it's a character that if the show goes, it'll really be around. And from there, I just really had the rare opportunity to, uh, Elwood and Meredith thankfully really liked me and they allowed me with them to really build that character from the boots up you know and, and for me being a southern guy is a dream you know I'm just, it's not a hard character so I have law enforcement in my family I also had you know you know radio guys all the way up to engineers you name it all kind of southern folks in my family so it was a great character but they really just the look of the character I was really in a rare opportunity to even help build the look of the character uh, which was unusual indeed. now what was it like your first day on set because you know you, you'd been you had smaller parts you had been involved the movie sure. you had before you had written it was yeah. your concept but now you're sure. you're at network you're under the helm of a director yeah. you're yeah. under you know two inner I mean Diane, who eventually, you know, was going to end up being in a uh, Tarantino movie, and uh, yeah, Bashir, sure. who was, I believe, Oscar nominated. So you're yeah, you're yeah. you're working with two international heavyweights, not as known as America. Sure. What is that like when you first walk on set? And even uh, Ted Levine, who you know, I mean, yeah. you know, oh, he yeah. was he yeah. was in Science of the Lambs, but so much other great yeah. stuff. But what is that like for you? All of a sudden, you're you're just a you're a, a southern guy, you know, you've, you've done some things, you know, this was, as you said, you were basically, the the stars aligned for you to get even yeah. in to see this, and you get the part. What is it, are you nervous, or what is it like with that first day on set, because it's different now, man, like, you're, you're in the mix, yeah. you got, you got a trailer, yeah. this is, this is, this is yeah. the shit. Yeah, 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 y
Yeah, no, um, that's a great question. It's 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 interesting because I think everybody has a different thing about work and, and opportunities. And, of course, there's some nerves involved with everything. People that say there isn't, I'm always kind of like, wow. Um, it's kind of like I compare, I played sports you know, a lot, you know. So it's kind of like uh, the first hit in a football game. If you ever played football, you know, an athletes, until you take that first hit, until you get hit that first time in the game, or that first, then you're kind of in the game, you know. So for me, the read-through was kind of that first hit, you know. Uh, we all got together at uh, Carolyn Bernstein, at Grad's house, uh, FX Execs, and, and Shine Execs, and, and Hancock Park, and got to meet everybody and do the read-through. And, uh, and at the read-through, though, I had, I'll get to the set thing, because this is a good story. There, there's not a time, obviously, for all these stories, but at the read-through, had this moment where Ted Levine says something to me and Ted just kind of stopped and and looked up from the script and looked at me at the read through and just and just gave me this line and I just remember like that was that was the first hit. I remember thinking, oh man, like I got a I got a spar with one of my heroes here. I got a spar with this guy, you know. And uh, and had so much fun. But that was the moment where I was like, wow, this is this is for real. And that, and then after that hit to be honest, once I got on set, in a good hit, once I got on set, I just kind of already had had some quality. I was really, really fortunate, Steve. Uh, Ted Levine, I went to him that day around the snack table or whatever was set up for snack, for eating in between in the retreat. And I just said, man, I'm so honored to get the opportunity to work with you. And it's my first uh, show like this. I would love to learn from you, man. Would you take me under your wing and, and help me out in any way you can? And he did, you know. And I thankfully learned really quick, and I've been blessed to be on a lot of sets. And uh, when I first moved to L.A., I kind of was a stand-in on a show, and I kind of tricked my way into a producer's badge on the Paramount lot and was on a show for months. And I just snuck on every set I could to learn everything, you know. And I put myself through my own education, my own film school, if you will, to be able to make picking and grinning, to be able to know what to do as a, as a guest star or whatever. And I, you know, just had the rare opportunity that I said, to, I said, hey, Uncle Ted, you know, nudge me if I'm not in the light. Nudge me if I'm not doing something right. And I went to the camera. We had amazing camera operators on the shows. You can imagine great, great, amazing crew. And I just said, hey, guys, um, you know, help me out here. You know, I want to make it as easy for the stars. I don't want to be in the way when Damien Desir is, is, is coming in to – to, for the winning touchdown, you know? And uh, I knew the value of working with those caliber of people, and I was really, really, really fortunate. And for my first real kind of swings, if you will, in the game to be at the bottom of the ninth with, you know, a pitcher who's hurt his arm and runners on base, that's unusual, you know? So I was really fortunate to get to work with those quality of people. It kind of sets you in a, in a good way, I think, you know, moving forward. Now, now you got the first season – it, it gets it gets good reviews. People like mm-hmm. the show. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when do you find out you're getting renewed for the second season? And were you sitting there? Were you were you like saying in your mind, "I if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, I'm just blessed to have this opportunity to learn." What is your mind frame when there when mm-hmm. renewal time starts coming up? Because yeah. as you know, I talk to actors. You know, first of all, sure. it's you know you get renewed. You you know. You you got you can get a new car. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. but and so yeah. so what what was going through your mind, and when did you find out you got renewed? Um, for for me, I think you tell yourself what you said. 
you know, I think you tell yourself, well, whatever happens, happens, and I've been extremely blessed. And, that, and that's true. I'm not, uh, you know, poo-pooing that. I'm just saying, yeah, you tell yourself that because that's what you want to, you want to be realistic and you want to know that you can't put all your eggs. What was it Mark Twain said? Don't put all your eggs in one basket, but if you do, keep your eyes on that basket. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, I kind of had an unusual I don't know how unusual. I had an unusual experience that that was my first big show. You know, so for me, as much as I may say that, I wanted the show to go on. <laughs> you know, um, I, I had a great role and I had a great opportunity, and and you know, I really wanted the show to continue. So it's tough. It's tough to to say what's going to happen is going to happen and keep that reality about you, and to not think on it too much, but. You know, I definitely wanted to get picked up. I was definitely, you know, obviously pulling for that. We, they waited, FX waited kind of late compared to what other people thought might would happen of when to pick it up, you know. And it was my first rodeo and all that. So I learned a lot. You know, I'd only tested at that point for maybe one show. You know, I'd only test for one pilot and gone through that. And so, you know, gone that far for a big role, you know. So anyway, it came, I want to say, I think I remember we were done. For season, I want to I want to say we were almost done shooting season one, because um, you know starts airing you know before you you know we had already aired five or six episodes I can't remember, but I want to say it came down to you know I can't remember exactly when it happened but I I'm sure we can book that up but it happened pretty later than we thought they had gotten to the point where we kind of like well will it happen or won't it you know it didn't have the best ratings in the world had good but not not bad. So when we knew people, we knew that John Landegraff was a fan of the show and that FX loved the show and that they weren't just saying that. Uh, and all the writers loved the show. We had an amazing group of writers and producers. I mean, not just saying that because I was on it. Like, you know, it was one of those shows that everybody liked come to work. I'm sure everybody you talked to told you that. Like, and I didn't even know then how rare that was. Ted told me that. But I didn't know. You know, everybody liked the show and like coming to work. So I think it was, gosh, I want to say we were screening an episode uh, on set. You know how sometimes you'll do that. I think we were at lunch, and they rolled out the TV, and we were screening an episode, and they said, Elwood wants to talk to everybody, and he came out, and he said, um, at that time, I think he just said, look, uh, we don't know what the network's going to do, uh, you know, and, and then I think the next episode we screened, he came in, and he was just like, you know, be smart, look for, you know, look for other work. He's such a great guy, a really is a great man. And he, the next time we screened, he came in. I think he said, "All right, we've been picked up for season two. Or they, I think they had announced it that morning or something." And he basically said, "Don't go buy a car. Don't go. You know, I don't know if anybody was making that kind of money, but don't. You know, he just he's a, he's a real, you know, blue collar, hardworking writer. He's a novelist. You know, who's sat in the kitchen creating with no applause. You know, for a long time. And so he just gets it. And he just get. You know, he just said, let's." be humble and let's try to make a good show and let's try to keep moving forward but you know it was late in the season you know when we heard so it was, uh, I think some of us had kind of thought maybe we won't you know be picked up so so you get picked up you get the second season the show story's changing you know things are yeah. different I mean it's different you know it's one of those things where you know Eric's character really wasn't involved yeah. and, and it would be hard to do that now did you sit there like any time during that season? Did you have a feeling the show may be getting canceled? 
I didn't I didn't have a feeling it might get canceled because really FX had really shown us a lot of support even behind the scenes. You know, look, with season one we're in hospital stages and Van Nuys and you know, and nothing great stages, older stages, smaller stages. They moved us to Santa Clarita. They had three different studios. You know, they spent money that you just don't spend. You know, when a show is not going to continue. You know, it just was obvious that it looked like they were in for the long haul with the show. So, um, you know, I knew the show had gone darker, and then that was Elwood's intent. You know, Meredith went back to Homeland, and it was his show alone that season. And, you know, he wanted to go dark, and he, he said, this is the show I want to make. I want to swing for the fences, and everybody supported it. And I loved where we were going and where the writers were going, and even though it meant my screen time for me. You know, uh, I definitely went through a growing process that season on the show, having to be my second season, and feel like I wanted to do so much more, and I wanted the character to be in more, and, and things that you want, you know, selfishly for the show, as well as, yeah, as a career, but then seeing that from other standpoints of writers and story editors and Ellen and, and I, you know, I grew up a lot that season. I made, you know, I made, you know, definitely made mistakes at times. I was like, hey, how about, you know, can I be more involved or whatever? You know, I definitely learned some hard lessons that season of the show because, um, you know, you, you, the show's about way more things than obviously just one character. It's about way more things than obviously uh you start to really learn and see i was trying to write on the show as well uh just behind the scenes I, you know i'm a writer and i wanted to write and learn drama and i have a rare opportunity to be around some of the writers and get to know them and they were very very sweet and and helpful to me and i was kind of going to my own school at the time as a writer you know trying to write drama and write some specs and so for me it was a huge learning opportunity and a huge growing opportunity to learn all that, we did. I did not think that the show would get canceled, to be honest. And it wasn't. I, I'm sure it's part just me being positive, because you know I, I I wanted the show to continue. But also, I just did not. You know, I don't. I think I don't know how many people really saw it coming, to be honest. So it gets canceled. You know, you go mm-hmm. through that, but you know, you have that under your belt, and now you, you yes. basically have to start looking for it. How did you end up in the Chris yep. Cornell video? <laughs> You know, it's an interesting, I'm, I'm probably too honest to be slick in interviews because I just, I'm a, I'm a fan of actors and writers and workers and creative people and tradesmen. People work with leather, people work with their hands. You know, I think that writers are some of the only craftsmen left in our world and musicians, you know, and so I support and love filmmakers and, and actors and storytellers and writers. So I tend to tell the full story, you know. Um, what the bridge did for me was a couple of things. Number one, it made me incredibly picky, maybe sometimes too picky. Um, I've kind of gone through a couple of agents. I've kind of gone through uh, not wanting to do certain things, wanting to work. I'm always a worker. I work other jobs and I work, but just it made me really stepped up the quality of what I want to be a part of, you know, and the roles that I want to do. And sometimes you cannot choose that, especially when you're a new person that even though you've had a show under your belt, you need to get more shows and you need to get more guest stars and do more work. And I write, I'm writing a feature right now. I've written several, I'm trying to do my, my own films, about to direct for the first time this year, thankfully, and been preparing for that for a long time. So I've been trying to grow in a lot of ways. So the Chris Cornell video, um, the Farrah West, who cast our 
Picketing Grin, who cast our movies, remained a friend, and she was casting for a great young director, Jesse Hill, Australian. She's going big places, this, this young lady, great director. And I had done one video for her already for an Australian duo uh, that's really talented uh, with uh, Damon Harriman and some great cast members. And then she came back to me because uh, she was going to do Chris's video and just uh, came to me and said, I, you, I loved you in the first video, the therapist before, the director came to me and said, I want you to do this one. I was like, absolutely. And she's like, we're talking, uh, Farrell was talking to Earl to be in it, who's obviously my friend. So yeah, I was like, come on, work with Earl and, and Eric Roberts and do it out, do a Western video, you know, Chris Carnell, yeah, I'm it, you know. So that, that's, that's kind of how that happened. So we only have a few minutes left. Uh, the ba- yeah. the band now the band mm-hmm. oh, what's the name of it <laughs> the Sawdust Brothers the what yeah the Sawdust Brothers the Sawdust Brothers okay now now yeah, well, the Sawdust Brothers, yeah. what kind of music are you guys playing country full on country and western it's almost it's kind of a seventies to be I, I don't even know I say seventies country and western record I mean we're really influenced by the Birds Sweethearts of Rodeo and Merle Haggard Willie Nelson and Bob Owens, you name it, and uh, we just made a full throttle. Three different singers, we all sing lead and harmony, we all play every instrument on the record. I met those boys over 20 years ago in Nashville, we've been playing in different machinations for 20 years. Uh, we literally, one lives in Portland, one lives in Nashville, I live in Burbank. We put a record together, emailing each other tracks and playing at different studios in our towns and in our homes, and then got together in Nashville and had a great Keith Compton, an amazing engineer, mix the record. And we've been really fortunate to play shows all over. We tour when we can. You know, we don't have a record deal. We put it out ourselves. Uh, there's a website, sawdustbrothers.com. We're on Facebook, and it's out there. It's on iTunes and everywhere. Uh, first record's called Tennessee Rose. And um, it's uh, it's one of my biggest accomplishments of my career in my life. So that's out there. We're working on the second record now. On the website, there's a, a new tune, Blackberry Shine, that I wrote with those guys that I sing lead on that will be the single from the second record that's up right now so people can check it out. And now what's coming up on the acting forefront? What, what, what's coming up? Oh, man. Uh, thankfully, good things. I've shot a few more. I've been really fortunate commercially in my career and uh, worked a lot of commercials and I, I've shot a couple commercials that I can't say what that'll be airing soon. Uh, I'm up for some really good episodes of TV right now. I've been writing. I'm also, we wrote and pitched a, uh, we're writing and pitching a, a single cam uh, you know, comedy. Um, my partner and I from Picking and Grinning, Garrett Matheny, and I are, are created a show that we're trying to pitch and um, and writing, writing a feature that I'm going to direct. And uh, yeah, just, just all paddles in the water, Steve. That's it. Just auditioning, you know, and writing and uh, chasing kids around from sporting event to sporting event. And I teach kids acting. Um, Sometimes uh, my daughter's in Burroughs at, at Burroughs High School in Drama, and I teach uh, and work with some of her friends. And so, you know, just uh, just just trying to find the next show and the next script and do good feature work and uh, build a build a reel, you know, build a good uh, reel. Um, you know, my manager, Alan Summers, represents Bruce Dern and Peter Fonda. And I'm trying to follow in those footsteps, Steve. I'm trying to do good American character roles. Um, you know, that create a body of work that I can be proud of and that, uh, you know, can, can feed my family. That's about it. Do you ever, uh, do you ever jam in Burbank? You playing anywhere in Burbank? The Sawdust Brothers? I know, could not do, but do you ever, do you ever just go out and jam in Burbank? 
I, you know, I used to play, I used to do a bunch of open mic stuff, comedy wise, and we used to play some music at uh, the the Coanga General Store. I used to be howling back, it's one of my favorite places, but they don't do music anymore. Uh, I am going to be doing. I'm finally in the process of just putting together some acoustic nights. I do some in the round acoustic nights here and there. Uh, not really, Burbank doesn't really have a lot of, you know, Viva, other than Viva Fresh, there's not a lot of music, I mean, in the ballpark that has rock bands over there on, on Burbank Boulevard, but I'm in the process putting my own coffee shop in Burbank, trying to, you know, just put together some acoustic nights with several great musician friends that live in Burbank that play, and we're in the process of trying to put together some songwriter nights and things, but the band, we go to Nashville and that area and play, you know, once a year, and a couple dates, and we Portland, because the other guy lives there. We've yet to play L.A. We're trying to put together a situation uh, very soon to do Portland and then a West Coast kind of swing with the Sawdust Brothers. But I do do stand-up here and there, and the Johnsons every once in a blue moon will sneak out and play the Laugh Factory at the Comedy Store. So I'm on uh, Twitter, and I'm on Facebook and all that, and the band has uh, Facebook and Twitter, and we put it out there. But uh, hopefully I'll be playing in Burbank soon, my friend. And I'll come out and I'll host it because you know I did. I was a stand-up from eighty-eight to ninety-five on the road back east. So I don't. Yeah, I know. I, I researched you. We have to. We have to do a show together. No. I would love for you to come host it, man. Uh, we when we did, we're kind of getting back in it to maybe do some comedy shows. Garrett and I, the Johnsons again, and usually what we do is we kind of uh, we kind of host the show and bring it, do four or five comics, and we come up and do a song and a bit and bring up a comic. You know, but uh, maybe there's a way we can do something with you. I'd love to do that, man. So now, now, what's your Twitter? Tell, tell everyone your Twitter. It's just Johnny Dowers, man. Just Johnny Dowers. Johnny Dowers, uh, people. And, yeah, uh, Johnny Dowers on Twitter, and Johnny Dowers. I'm, I'm, it's all Johnny Dowers, and then Sawdust Brothers. Um, you know, we have Twitter and, and, uh, and Facebook, but yeah, Saw, uh, at, at Sawdust Brothers. And um, that's it, man. It's all out there. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I was glad. I mean, we started a while ago. I remember we started back when The Shield was getting canceled, I think. Yeah. I had sent you a message. And because uh, Alejandro I met, and uh, he yeah. made my show, and then I popped out. And then I just sent, I, I sent it. So I'm glad you came on. So people, people go follow Johnny uh, Dowers. If you can find The Bridge, wow. watch it. Hey, and he, <laughs> yeah. and it, was, it was a great show. I think show. we're finally on Hulu. They were finally See that? On Hulu. Well, good. And, and also quickly, I got a film, a great film I'm proud of, a lot of heart called Texas Heart that's on Amazon Prime and all formats now. It's called Texas Heart. I play a great uh, character in that, but it's out there now too. So. so watch that, people. And he played a character named Cooper, which is cool. So listen, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 560-something episodes. I'll be putting up the Gary Sharon from uh, from Extreme episode soon. Martha Davis is in the can. Uh, Carmine of Pieces in the can. Johnny Dowers, you, you're listening, so you know he's in the can. And uh, also, don't forget, uh, go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember a few years ago, I had that health problem, and I had to start eating healthy. And so what I did was, I got out of hospital, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're for one, pretty much. There's no pictures to intimidate you, because we get intimidated when we see pictures. There's no long list of ingredients. If you don't use cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. Just get this book. Now, you can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, both of them. Or you can get it from me at StopTheSalt.com. No one's getting it from me. They're getting it from them. Get it from me. I make more money, and I'll autograph it for you. And also, don't forget, Cooper Talk 1 on Instagram and Cooper Talk 1 on Words with Friends. I will play you. As I said, Twitter, 
uh, at Cooper Talk. And I'll give a special RIP to a Brian Tag Sontag, a friend of mine I became friends with on Facebook. I did his podcast. He was a really nice guy from Florida. He edited a few Cooper Talk shows. I had a problem a few weeks ago when Paula Marshall had to go pick up her daughter at school after she broke her arm. Brian did it, uh, splicing together. Well, it turns out I just found out he died two nights ago. So I'm going to give an RIP. And uh, look at him on Facebook. Go listen to some of his old uh, podcasts. And uh, he was a great guy. And that's the thing, man. You never know when you're going to go. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, at Johnny Dowers, at Cooper Talk, and watch the bridge. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week, and have a great weekend.